Hello, this is Andrew Gomison, and I want to welcome you to this edition of the Speaking For Him podcast. So grateful that you have taken the time to join me. I have a great episode in store for you today, but as we kick it off, I just want to say thank you to everyone who came out and supported my 500th podcast celebration. And even if you were not able to attend, if you supported my ministry any time within the last nine and a half years of podcasting, you get credit for what happened last week. So I just want to encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. It's there in the archives for your listening pleasure at your convenience. So please take the time to do that. Today on the show, we will be reviewing The Chosen Season 2, Episode 6. The name of the episode is Unlawful. But before we do that, let's talk about what is going on. Our first story of note brings us to the Sunshine State of Florida, where the governor, Ron DeSantos, has been a stalwart uh, voice for family values and for protecting our children. And one of those issues that he recently signed a bill for was to extricate the schools of Florida from clearly pornographic materials that are filtering in even as low as the kindergarten and grade school level. And in response to that, someone decided that maybe the Bible itself needs to be banned. Starting July 1st, a new law goes into effect for Florida schools. It will ban books and learning materials that discuss pornographic or, quote, inappropriate content for kids. Well, an activist from Boca Raton is already testing that law when it comes to one very famous book, the Bible, which has several mentions of things like incest as well as sexual assault. If you want to see for yourself, you can look up these specific verses in the Bible. It's passages like those that have opponents of the new law calling for schools to ban the Bible. This is clearly a very narrow interpretation of the new law. NBC2's Claire Lavazorio investigates whether there's any traction to the argument to ban the good book in local school districts. Florida rejected 54 math books for its public schools, saying they talk about critical race theory. Now one activist wants to add another book to that pile. A Bible ban is brewing in the state of Florida. You know what? It should be a parent's choice in my eyes. School districts across the state are reviewing textbooks children will use in the fall. Now the Bible is the latest up for debate and parents are speaking their mind. You might as well ban the Bible. It's, to me, it's the same thing. I believe that the Bible should be there um, for a choice, whether they want to read it or not. The Bible battle started with this letter that activist Chaz Stevens sent to 62 school districts across the state, including Lee County. The letter goes as far as for asking for the banishment of any book that references the Bible. Many parents believe that crosses the line. We're doing a disservice when we're taking out certain things. I think it's awful. I think they're, they're just cha- changing t- too, too much of the past now. In any case, when it comes to children or students and books and Bibles, it, it, it needs to be a choice. A spokesperson for the district says there aren't any Bibles in school libraries, but there are some Bible-related materials in the schools. In Lee County, Claire LaVazorio, NBC2. 
let me first say, as we embark on this discussion, that I was surprised that there was even much biblical influence in the Florida public schools just because there have been so many stories in the news throughout the years about how you supposedly cannot reference or use the Bible in a public school setting. Now, of course, we know that that is nowhere in the Constitution, and that usually comes down to school policy, but the way that the schools justify their policy is often by saying that it is a separation of church and state issue and that we have to follow, quote-unquote, the Constitution by outlawing a book like the Bible that has very specific things to say about religion. So that's the first thing I would say. And the second thing I would say is, very clearly, the Bible does not skip over tough topics. But when the Bible lays out these sexual issues, it clearly delineates these issues like rape and incest and things of that nature as bad, as wicked, as sins. And so when you're comparing that to a book for preschoolers or kindergartners or or grade schoolers, whoever it may be, that is dealing with exploring your sexuality, particularly apart from a biblical worldview that says that my sexuality is a gift given to me by God, then there is no comparison. But when you take a stand like Governor DeSantos has repeatedly, you will be targeted. And that's what we're seeing here, is that he's being targeted for taking a principled stand. You know, there have been similar discussions uh, about critical race theory. Those that oppose critical race theory are not saying that we as Americans did everything right. We are simply saying that the generation that exists now is responsible for the actions of the generation that exists now, and that we have no way of being held responsible for the the actions of those in our past. Not only that, but the Constitution, the very document that many of these people tear down, is the very thing that allowed us to correct so many of the egregious things that we did in the past. Now, I know it may feel like, if you're a regular listener, that I rehash these things a lot, but I think they need to constantly be coming before our minds and our thoughts, and we need to keep our eyes open to what is actually going on here. Because one of the things that is really the enemy of America is ignorance. So if I could encourage you, just examine these issues. You don't have to totally agree with me, but I just encourage you to have an open mind and examine these issues. Because the reality is, as I've said previously on this podcast, the primary vehicle for education of kids should be parents. Any schools that you send your kids to should support the authority of the parents. And so often these schools go off on these high horses and say, well, we're the teachers, we're the schools, we know what's best for your kids, and this sexual revolution that is going on in schools where we even have kids 
who are being told they can claim their own gender, whichever they feel, when they get to school and hide it from their parents, is dangerous. You know, a while back during the quarantine, when people were doing school online, I talked about a story and actually did a whole episode about a teacher who said that he was battling dangerous parents when it came to teaching his Zoom classes because he didn't want kids to be embarrassed or not want to participate in class because their parents were overhearing what they say. Even though parents had the primary responsibility for forming their children into the people that they are meant to be. Proverbs 22, verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is a principle. Obviously, there are godly parents that struggle with children who choose to reject God, but the overarching principle is that parents are to train up their children in the way they should go, and that they will retain the lessons that their parents teach. And I I think that overall, the thing that we see from Florida and DeSantos is he's like, parents have the primary responsibility for teaching their kids, particularly on issues that are as serious as sexual issues. And not to mention the fact that when we go away from a fixed moral standard on things like sex, we have chaos. Every once in a while, as I'm scrolling through my Facebook watch, I will see these clips from shows like Maury Povich. And they're all about someone arguing that the person that that thinks they're the father isn't the father, or the person that denies they're the father is the father. And if we would follow a biblical worldview that says sex is for a married man and a married woman to engage in together for the purpose of raising up the next generation and for the purpose of marital unity, then those shows would not exist. The fixed moral standard of a man and a woman together for a lifetime is to avoid the chaos that we see in this world, in these relationship issues and these custody issues with children. And it actually ties in to the next topic that I want to talk about because over the last week or so, maybe a little bit more than that, there has been talk of little outs, but the leak of a brief from the Supreme Court regarding the future of Roe versus Wade. An unprecedented leak at the Supreme Court, sending Democrats and Republicans into a frenzy, but for different reasons. Chief Justice John Roberts confirming the authenticity of a draft opinion that would overturn Roe versus Wade, while pointing out that the Supreme Court has not made a final decision. Roberts ripping the leak as an egregious breach of trust and is ordering an investigation. President Biden and Democrats ignoring the leak and are instead attacking Republicans and conservative justices on the high court. this decision holds, it's really quite a radical decision. This is a dark and disturbing morning for America. This is a five-alarm fire. 
we need to get rid of the filibuster. And Roe is just exhibit A. Part of this November's election, reproductive rights will be on the ballot. This would appear to be an invitation to have, you know, a Handmaid's Tale type um, anti uh, feminist uh, regulation. These justices are acting like this is somehow something that they have the right to change. They do not have the right to change this. Wow, this isn't coordinated at all. Democrats also telling their supporters to get out there and protest. Meanwhile, Republicans say the leak was meant to intimidate the justices into changing their vote. The radical left immediately rallied around the toxic stunt, making a last-ditch Hail Mary attempt to cause a political firestorm and cause the court to reconsider. The Democrats really don't see the rule of law or their court's independence as principles that are above politics. That's a real significant breach of trust. You want to talk about an insurrection, you know, that's a judicial insurrection. Mm. If only we had a judge here. All right, judge. Who do you think leaked it and why? And give us your give us your assessment of this whole scene. I don't have the slightest idea who yeah. leaked it, but I'll tell you this. Whoever leaked it did something that is unheard of in American history. I mean, you just don't leak a decision by any judge, let alone a Supreme Court justice. I mean, there is. And one of the things that we can be proud of is that the justices on the Supreme Court, they can be on the opposite side of issues, but you never hear about them not getting along. I mean, we hear about Scalia, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the best of friends, although ideological. Logically, they were on opposite sides. So whoever leaked this, we have to find out who the person is and, and, and charge them with a crime. I don't know what the crime would be, whether it's some kind of fraud on government property. Uh, I've heard there's a statute, fraud on the government, that's very broad that could include this kind of uh, act. But I'll tell you what's so interesting about this is if they wanted to, to gin up the left, who was in for an alleged bloodbath in November by the Republicans, there is no better way to do it than with Roe versus Wade. But if you'll just indulge me for a minute, I read the decision at length, the Dobbs decision, as well as Roe again. Roe, they say in this decision, is an exercise of raw judicial power. In other words, it is the Supreme Court acting as a legislative body. And understand that if this decision is ultimately the decision of the court, it doesn't outlaw abortion. All it says is we're saying it's not a constitutional right. Congress can pass a law. So if Chuck Schumer is so fired up, pass a law, Chuck. Every state can pass its own law. They can, they can, you know, negate it. They can ban it. They can, they can promote it, whatever they want to do. But this is what I think is so stunning about it. This decision says there is no right to abortion that is implicit in the Constitution. Understand there are three tests. Number one, is it in the Constitution? Is it a constitutional right? Freedom of speech is a constitutional right. First Amendment. The right to bear arms is a constitutional right. Second Amendment. But the right to an abortion, it is implied based upon what Roe says is the first, fourth, fifth, ninth, fourteenth amendment, and I won't get into it, but they say we don't know which one for sure, but it's through the due process clause. In order for it to be part of due process Mm -hmm. and legal, and constitutional. It must be deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition, and it must be implicit in ordered liberty. Is abortion deeply rooted in our nation's history? No. In fact, at the time of Roe, virtually every state outlawed abortion. And right before Roe, going back to the common law, it was murder, 
uh, and then it was reduced to a misdemeanor in some uh, in some states. So again, there's a lot I could say here, but let me just say a couple things. Number one is the issue that jumped out to me when they were playing some of the clips from the people protesting this potential decision and this this lady saying that it was totally outrageous for the court to think that they had the right to overturn this decision. Well, here's the rub on that. The fact of the matter is that this decision was made in the Supreme Court. So, yes, because we have acknowledged the decision of the Supreme Court to be what it was in the matter of Roe versus Wade, then it follows that the ones to overturn it would be on the Supreme Court. So that's first of all. Second of all is this backwards and forwards game that the liberals play with Roe because they will say Roe is the law of the land. You shouldn't touch the law of the land. And then Joe Biden tipped his hand during the 2020 presidential election because he said one of his primary goals after getting into office was to codify Roe so that it would become the law of the land legislatively. Now, there would be no need to codify it into law if it was, in fact, good law. So, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth on this issue, saying, on one hand, it is good law. On the other hand, we need a legislative law because it's not good law. That's the second thing. The next thing that people need to understand about Roe that was delineated in this story is the idea that once Roe falls, which all indications are that it will, uh, there are at least five justices, according to this brief, who have given their assent to overturning Roe versus Wade. So if it, if it follows through and they actually render the same decision in June, Roe would fall. So we need to understand what Roe versus Wade falling means for us. And the primary thing that it means is that the right for an abortion would go back to the states. That's why within the last two or three years, you've seen so many liberal states go to their legislatures and say, let's make an even harsher pro-abortion law because then if Roe falls, our state is covered. And it's important for us to remember that New York, for just one example, had abortion three years before Roe, before Roe became the law of the land, supposedly. And the biggest problem with decisions like Roe versus Wade and the similar decision on homosexual marriage is that it took the efforts of the states wherein many states had made decisions on these two issues individually saying we're going to define life, um, have some sort of restriction on abortion, and also on the marriage issue we're going to define marriage between a man and a woman. And I think uh, particularly on the marriage issue there was at least 32 states that said this. 
And in both these cases, the Supreme Court comes in and says, all of your state laws are null and void because we say that somewhere implicit in the Constitution is the right to these things. And it's so important to realize that the 14th Amendment, which I guess was among several amendments that the Roe versus Wade proponents say guarantees the right to abortion, but the 14th Amendment, which was first established to talk about the complete personhood of the slave, was actually used as a pro-life argument by judges pre-Roe. So the very thing that we are using to tear down the personhood of the unborn child was used to affirm the right to kill that person when Roe versus Wade came down. So when Roe versus Wade comes down, the pro-life movement is not over. It is still going to be in full force because we still need to work on changing hearts and letting people know that abortion kills a human life. The thing that's most discouraging right now is that they're not even denying anymore that they do kill human lives. They're just saying that they have the implicit right to do so. I want to play another clip. This one's from Charlie Kirk and a little bit of his take on this issue. For the last two years, we've been talking about vaccine mandates and how your body is not your own and you must submit to the government. And yet now the left is saying my body, my own, my choice, I could do whatever I want. So there's there's this inherent contradiction in the entire pro-abortion argument that I just think is so glaring and so obvious. I'll tell you obviously why I think we as pro-lifers are perfectly consistent with allowing for vaccine autonomy and also the protection of the unborn because they're both they're human beings that deserve the uh, the right to be protected and preserved. But this leak, what is now being called the Supreme Leak, is there's so many different dimensions to this that we're going to unpack over the next hour. But the one that just is immediate to me is that the third branch, Article 3 of the United States Constitution, is no more. If now you're able to leak decisions before they happen to try to inspire riots and protests and media chatter, to try to influence Thomas and influence Amy Coney Barrett, and influence Kavanaugh, and influence Alito, and influence Gorsuch. If you can now do that, well, then the Supreme Court is no longer this sacrosanct group of judges. It's now basically an augment of the the media chattering class and the activist class. Roe versus Wade looks like it's going to be overturned. Praise God. So the Supreme Court has a pretty serious problem on their hands right now. And so John Roberts has validated that the leak is legitimate, that this indeed happened. Uh, John Roberts said, quote, yesterday, and John Roberts, the Supreme Court justice, yesterday a news organization published a copy of a draft opinion in a pending case. Justices circulate draft opinions internally as a routine, an essential part of the court's confidential deliberate work. Although the document described in yesterday's reports is authentic, it does not represent a decision by the court or the final positions of members or issues in the case. And that's exactly why they leaked it. They knew this. They leaked this because, and according to Politico, justices can and sometimes do change their votes as draft opinions circulate. 
and major decisions can be subject to multiple drafts and vote trading, the court's holding will not be final until it's published, likely in the next two months. And so what they're trying to do here is they're leaking it intentionally early. They're trying to create rancor and backlash, and they're trying to create hysteria so that the justices start to get cold feet. So that one of the justices, probably not Clarence Thomas or Alito, probably not Gorsuch, probably not Amy Coney Barrett. This is probably all directed at Brett Kavanaugh. Now, mind you, this could very well backfire in a variety of different ways. This is Brett Kavanaugh, who, of course, almost had his life destroyed by this very same mob, where they came after him banging on the doors of the United States Supreme Court. They already are shutting down Washington, D.C. There's barricades in front of the U.S. Supreme Court building in anticipation of the backlash. Now, there's the 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 intensity behind this issue is really something, isn't it? Look, I'm very passionately pro-life, obviously. I don't believe in the, you know, one million plus abortions that happen every single year in our country. I think that's a very simple and moderate perspective. But regardless of your opinions on this, uh, on abortion, I'm sure some of you are pro-choice in our audience, not a lot of you, but okay. That, that's an opinion out there. This does not outlaw abortion. This simply brings it back to the states. And so, but yet it's such an important part of the Democrat political machine that they have to be able to terminate children in the womb that they found themselves to upend the entire history of the United States Supreme Court leaking this document and trying to create mass protests and media backlash. Look, it's not too far to say. In fact, it's not, it's not on shaky footing to say that the United States Supreme Court is now going to be threatened by activists and media members. You're going to see nonstop New York Times articles. Leak represents a chance for court to correct their draft. We are seeing some of that insanity that Charlie Kirk talked about. I heard on the menacing podcast with my buddies uh, Russ and John that the addresses of the five justices that were named affirming life in this brief were leaked to the public. I've heard that there have been nasty protests at each of their houses. Uh, this has to be difficult on each of their families. And, you know, I always find it interesting that the left claims to decry violence but they often are violent in the name of nonviolence, which to me makes zero sense. The next thing I want to say about this is the crooked lines that they're drawing from one thing to another. You know, I, I saw something that said if Roe versus Wade falls, interracial marriage is next, that, that they will reverse course on interracial marriage has nothing to do with the sanctity of human life. And yet they're drawing that inference and without even really realizing that Clarence Thomas has a wife who happens to be white. And so to outlaw interracial marriage would be to outlaw his own marriage. So he is not going to vote for that. And so, again, I think that if you're worried about the Supreme Court 
overturning a Supreme Court decision, then maybe you should work to have uh, these things dealt with through the legal process. I, I may still disagree with the law that has been done through the legal process. I may be morally obligated as a believer to go against a law that has been done through the legal process, but at least in this case, we are talking about something that isn't even law and is not affirmed anywhere in the Constitution, and yet people are worried, quote-unquote, about the legal ramifications. And the reality is that many of the blue states have shorn up their pro-abortion laws to such an extent that abortion will still be acceptable. Before I depart from this issue, I, I have a very important word to say to those who are believers who claim that abortion is a right that should be left alone. I'm going to start with something that I've said on a repeated basis. And that is that if you believe that we are created in the image of Almighty God, which is what the Bible teaches us, you cannot be for abortion. That's number one. Number two I see people saying, well, if if you are pro-life, you should be for universal health care. Or if, if you are pro-life, you better do something about this formula shortage. Uh, or if you, are, if you have anything to say about abortion, uh, you as a man should get a vasectomy so you don't impregnate and leave someone with a baby irresponsibly and by themselves. Well... First of all, let me say point blank. There is no justification for murder. And the circumstances of a baby's conception have nothing to do with the humanity of a baby. So again, if you believe that a baby is the image of God, then you have no leg to stand on as far as abortion is concerned. All of these arguments that people make are straw men. People don't realize that in order to have universal health care, we would have to have a much bigger government tax budget, which would mean that you and I would have to pay much more tax money. The reality is that the church has dropped the ball when it comes to caring for those in their midst. If someone is a widow, they need to be cared for by their church. If someone is an unwed mother, they should be cared for by their family. That is a reality. That is something that we, as a society, and particularly as a Christian society, can and should be ashamed of if that is not happening. But there is literally no justification for saying murder is okay in this instance. And for someone to say that because I'm a man, I have nothing to say on this issue because it's a woman's issue, I submit this to you. If it weren't for white men who stood up and said slavery is wrong during the Civil War era, slavery would not have ended. Slavery ended because abolitionists 
who were predominantly white men, believe it or not. For those that believe that all the problems in the world are caused by white men, this may be a shock to you, but it's true. If it weren't for principled, godly white men, we would still have slavery in this country. So there is also no basis for telling me that I can't render an opinion or a passionate defense of life. The bottom line is, God is the creator of life, and we are not to take it. Especially when it is innocent in the womb. The reason I say that is because I do believe in the death penalty. Why do I believe in the death penalty? Because of the preciousness of life. Genesis 9.6 reads, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. And so in this verse we see that when the death penalty was instituted, way back in Genesis, the reason that the death penalty was instituted is because we are made in the very image of God, and so God prizes us and values us above all other creation. And it is for this reason that I believe that the death penalty remains consistent with a pro-life view. Now we are going to take a look at The Chosen, Season 2, Episode 6. The name of this episode is Unlawful. And if you remember the end of the last episode of The Chosen that we reviewed, Mary had decided to go off on her own and leave Jesus and the disciples behind. Now she's really struggling throughout this episode because in the beginning of the episode, she has an encounter albeit not directly, with a Roman soldier, and it shakes her to her core. And she begins to think about who she was before being redeemed by Jesus, before choosing to follow him. And instead of going to him with her burdens and concerns, she allows the thoughts that are plaguing her to draw her away from the Lord. And I think we have all been there where we get saved We're thankful for the redemption of God, and we kind of think that it's going to be a one-time fixes-all. The reality is, as Dallas Jenkins points out in his review of this episode, justification is instantaneous, sanctification is a journey. And so, that is kind of the primary lesson of this episode, and something that Mary did not understand at the outset, and something that we all struggle with. Because I think we've all been guilty of trying to live the Christian life on our own power, and then we have to fall on our face before we realize the truth of the scripture that says, For it is God who worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God does the work, we just need to allow him to do the work. In my own life, that manifested itself when as a teenager I was like, really frustrated with the way God had made me. I was frustrated because my brother died, and I said, God, you say that you want me to be used of you, but you put all these obstacles in my way, and he just said, Andrew, 
get off the throne of your life and allow me to reside there and big things will happen. And they did. He opened up a lot of avenues for ministry, but they did not open up until I surrendered to him. And so I think that's an overarching theme of this episode. And we'll dig into that a little bit more as we go on. But first, I want to share with you some words from the director, Mr. Dallas Jenkins. The point that we really wanted to make in this scene between Mary and Matthew and Simon is what we feel like as human beings. When we have strayed in our life and Jesus rescues us in some way, that's one thing. But when we relatively quickly do it again, it's even harder to accept forgiveness and grace. It becomes even more shameful, and we are even more embarrassed. And we wanted to capture that to its fullest extent. And so this scene was not meant to be pretty. I talked about this with with Liz, about this is not going to be a smooth scene. There's going to be nothing pretty about it, nothing glossed over. We're going to go through what it looks like to be fully hung over and to be fully depressed and ashamed. And she says one of the most beautiful lines, in my opinion, in the whole show. He already fixed me once. On the set, that wrecked me. I think every take she did it, it wrecked me. I would come up to her to give her, whether it's notes or just to discuss the scene, and I had to gather myself because I've said that. I've been there. Maybe I didn't say those words in exactly that way, but that idea of, I thought I was good, I thought I was fixed, and then I broke again, and I can't face him. I've been there many times. You've no doubt been there many times. To see that Mary Magdalene, a hero of the faith, a follower of Jesus could go through that as well. And I do believe, as I said in episode five, I do believe that the disciples of Jesus did things like that. Maybe not this specific storyline, but I do believe these kind of struggles, this notion of, I thought I was good, I thought I was fixed, I think is something that anyone can identify with. The way that Liz delivered it was so beautiful. And I actually think that this is a recurring theme of sorts for the entire episode because you see it in the different groups throughout the episode. You see Mary, mother of Jesus, and Rama talking about the situation. And Rama saying, well, if Jesus is all-powerful, why doesn't he just bring Mary back? Why doesn't he just cause her to come back? And you see Thomas, uh, he's looking at the inventory of their food, and he's seeing that there's a shortfall there. You see the desperation uh, for for the disciples when they find out that John the Baptist is in, in jail. You see the desperation of the man with the withered hand. All these people have one thing in common, and that is that they need Jesus to make the difference. They cannot do it on their own. And the thing that we need to realize in our Christian life is that God will bring us to the breaking point. He has to bring us to rock bottom. He has to give us an impossible task and then accomplish it through us so that he gets all the credit. And I really appreciate the way that that gets brought out in this episode. So you have Mary. She's gone back to her old roots. She's gambling in this bar and she starts drinking um, because when we start to feel guilty, we don't want to deal with our guilt, so we try to hide it. She chooses to hide it with alcohol, and then she realizes 
uh, through the course of the activities that are going on that this isn't the place for her, so she leaves. Then you have the relationship with Peter and Matthew, and they are the ones that are assigned with going after Mary, and you and you see that from the very beginning of their interactions together on this series, they are adversaries because Matthew is the tax collector who, at least the way it was written here, was responsible for collecting taxes from Simon. So he always felt animosity toward Matthew because Matthew turned his back on his Jewish faith in order to work for the Romans and be a tax collector. And when Jesus selects Matthew, if you'll recall, he can't believe that Matthew's been selected by Jesus. And they're always going back and forth um, because they have this chasm between them uh, because of the way they were pitted against each other as enemies. And Jesus gives them this task to go find Mary. And of course, we see in this episode that they don't really find Mary so much as she notices them and calls out to them. And then they are able to render aid to Mary. And then, of course, that brings us to the famous exchange that we just heard about how she's not going to go back there, how he fixed her once, but she's broke again, and how could he accept her back again? And so you have that at play. You have, as I said, Mother Mary and Rhema, uh, they're discussing the sovereignty of God and how God doesn't just wave a magic wand and make things better in our life, but he always has a plan. So you see that element. You you see, um, like I said, Thomas dealing with uh, the food shortage and saying, Jesus, I don't know what we're going to do, but we, we need more food. And Jesus says, well, let's just pray to my father about it. And so you really see the truth of what Jesus said when he said, without me, you can do nothing. And so I really like the interplay of all these human emotions and human stories interceding with Jesus and seeing how Jesus responds to them with love and compassion. And so Peter and Matthew help Mary clean up because she uh, is hungover and there's some issues related to that. Um, And then they bring her back into the camp into the fellowship of the disciples and Rama and mother Mary welcome her back excitedly. And then Mary takes her to see Jesus. And there's a wonderful scene uh, between them, which I'm going to play for you now, which just shows the power of redemption. So it's good to have you back. I don't know what to say. I don't require much. I'm... I'm so ashamed. You redeemed me and I just threw it all away. Well, that's not much of a redemption if it can be lost in a day, is it? Yeah. I owe you everything. But... I just don't think I can do it. Do what? 
live up to it. Repay you? How could I leave? How could I go back to the place I was? And I didn't even... I didn't even come back on my own. They had to come get me. <sighs> I just can't live up to it. Well, that's true. <laughs> but you don't have to. I just want your heart. A father just wants your heart. Give us that, which you already have. And the rest will come in time. Did you really think that you'd never struggle or sin again? I know how painful that moment was for you. I shouldn't. Someday. But not here. I'm just so sorry. Look up. <laughs> I can't. You can. Look at me. <laughs> I forgive you. <laughs> it's over. Another key line in this episode was when she says, you redeem me and I threw it away. And he says, it's not much of a redemption if it only lasts for a day. And so I just thought that was a really good reminder to us that when Jesus does something, he does it totally. We read in Colossians that we are hid with Christ in God. We read in John that no one can pluck us from his hand. And so that should give us a lot of encouragement and comfort to know that our salvation is not dependent on ourselves. I always tell people if my salvation was dependent on myself, I would lose it because I lose everything. And so I'm so thankful that it's not. So I just thought that was a really powerful part of this episode. And then a few other things that happen throughout this episode is the healing of the man with the withered hand. I found it very significant that in this scene, the man with the withered hand is sitting outside the circle of other Jewish believers. And the man who is reading from the Torah is actually reading the section of the Torah, talking about who is unworthy to come before the Lord. And so it really adds a dimension to this scene, which is really well done special effects wise, by the way. And then Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath. They ridicule Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And his response is, if your animal got stuck in a ditch, wouldn't you take the time to pluck him out? That wouldn't be considered work. So he's saying, if you can help your fellow man when it is the Sabbath, you should do so. Don't use the Sabbath as an excuse 
for not helping your fellow man. And the Pharisees were good at using excuses for not helping people. Remember, Jesus also said to the Pharisees, you you give tithes and you use it as an excuse not to care for your parents. So I think it's just important for us to keep in perspective that God wants us to realize that the Sabbath was made for us so that we could have a rest, so that we could have a recharge. It was not, uh, we were not made for the Sabbath. And I think that's an important distinction, which is repeated again when we see the disciples eating the heads of the on, in the field of grain on the Sabbath. Once again, a lot of what Jesus did was on the Sabbath because he wanted to turn the paradigm upside down and say, you have one perception of the Sabbath, but this is what I actually mean by it. And so I think that was very deliberate and intentional on Jesus' part. And so all in all, it was a very good episode. I think the biggest lessons are uh, you can always come home to Jesus. Um, He wants you to be with him. Remember the story of the prodigal son. Uh, The father was looking for his son every day, and when he was a great way off, The father ran to his son and kissed him, and the prodigal son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and am no more worthy to be called your son. Please make me as one of your hired servants. But instead of accepting his offer, the man called his servants and put the best robe on him and good shoes and a ring and said, Let's kill the fatted calf, because my son who is lost is now found. So I really like the the lesson that Jesus said, you've already given me your heart. Now let me make you more like me as time goes on. That's what the Bible tells us. You know, it's simplified in this episode by Jesus saying, give it time and keep following me and be patient because there will come a day when you'll be without sin. Not here, but there will come a day. This reminds me of what Paul said when he said, that thing I would not do, that I do. But the thing that I would do, that I do not do. Talking about his struggle against the flesh. And then he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall save me from this body of death? And the answer is, thanks be to God who giveth me the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest men of the faith ever, had that struggle, then we can be encouraged that if we are struggling, God will be with us. And that same Jesus who delivered Paul can deliver us as well. I really like the fact that in the relationship with Matthew and Peter, you see uh, some of the melting of the ice between them. Um Peter realizes in watching Matthew care for Mary Magdalene that he is human, that he has real emotions, and that he is a changed person. Because in the beginning of the series, of course, Matthew's full of pride. He's in the upper echelon of society, at least as far as he can be, although he works for the roguish Romans. Um, But then as he comes into the fold of the disciples... He is going through a change. He's studying Torah. 
He's learning to be caring and compassionate. And Peter notices this as he is caring for Mary Magdalene. And he says, hey, maybe he is human. Maybe he does feel real things. And so I really liked that. I liked the discussion that Thomas had where he had a real struggle uh, with figuring out what to do about the food situation. And ultimately he went to Jesus and Jesus encouraged him to pray. And then we see the disciples react to John the Baptist being put in prison, specifically Andrew, because Andrew was one of John's disciples. And along with the apostle John. And so you see all of these things interplay together and the struggle of each individual in this episode is to realize that they can't do anything about their situation without the intervention of Jesus. And so it really is a very powerful episode. I really get excited about reviewing the chosen because it's free to watch anywhere. As long as you download the chosen app or watch the chosen on your computer via the chosen website. So you can watch this episode today. And I really think it would encourage your heart to do so. I think this is a, just a really powerful episode and I give it, uh, an easily four and a half out of five stars. And I just hope that it encourages your heart to realize that the same Jesus who was patient with the disciples and who heard their concerns and who forgave them, he is still alive and he ever lives and pleads for us at the right hand of God in heaven. So if you do not know what it's like to have the king of the universe, Jesus, pleading for you, then can I encourage you to accept God's free gift of salvation today? Well, that's about all I have time for for this week's episode. Please continue to share your feedback and ideas for future episodes. Please let your family and friends know where to listen to the Speaking for Him podcast. And if you get an opportunity, please leave a rating and review. That really does help me to be encouraged and helps other people find me. With that being said, I will simply say, have a great week and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.